Chapter 17 of Prophets, Priests, and Kings by Alfred George Gardiner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 Lord Morley of Blackburn. Lord Morley is the only double first of his time. He is perhaps the only double first since Burke. Other men have won distinction in more than one field. Canning wrote verse, Disraeli wrote novels, Macaulay was an orator and a historian, as well as a statesman. Gladstone discussed Homer as vehemently as he discussed home rule. Lord Rosebery has trifled as piquantly with letters as he has with politics. Mr. Balfour has spun cobwebs in covers as well as across the floor of the house. But of none of these can it be said that he was in the front rank, alike of literature and of statesmanship. It may, with reserve, be said of Lord Morley. That a man, wrote Macaulay, before whom the two paths of politics and literature lie open, and who may hope for eminence in either, should choose politics and quit literature, seems to me madness. I speak from memory, but I think he wrote that letter when he was smarting under his defeat at Edinburgh. The dictum must therefore be taken with reserve, for the grapes were sour but we may be grateful for a decision that gave us a history which macaulay himself compared with thucydides peloponnesian war and which posterity if it has not ratified that verdict has placed among the imperishable things of english literature lord morley with the two paths open before him came to a contrary decision in middle age with a secure european reputation in letters he rose from the editor's desk and took a commission in the field he gave up to a party what was meant for mankind, and left the harvest of his teeming brain largely ungarnered. When I see him, I seem to see a row of phantom volumes, books that will never be written, beginning with that life of Chatham, the promise of which, made nearly twenty years ago, is still unredeemed, and I wonder whether posterity will endorse his decision as it has endorsed Macaulay's no man ever made a more dramatic entrance into office than he did the announcement one morning that mr john morley was the new irish secretary was the first clear indication of the most momentous departure in policy made in our time it meant that home rule was the official policy of the liberal party it startled the country then if it could have foreseen all that it meant it would have been startled still more for it would have seen that it meant not merely a change of policy but a political revolution the end of an epoch twenty years of reaction culminating in the emergence of the spectre of protection and side by side with it the emergence into practical politics of social ideals which lord morley was wont to regard as the idle dreams of impatient idealists for lord morley belongs to the past he looks out on politics with reverted eyes he has it is true more than any other man the passion of the old philosophic radicals for liberty and political equality he sat at the feet of john stuart mill and wears the mantle of that great man not unworthily though with a difference for the disciple has less of the optimism of logic than the master the spirit of the french revolution still burns in him with a pure flame manchester the manchester of the mid-victorian time still speaks through him with unfaltering accents he is the high priest of liberty the civil and religious liberty of the individual he stands for a cause that is largely won 
but being one still needs that eternal vigilance which is the price of liberty to hold as well as to win that is his task he is the guardian of the victories of the past he is not a pioneer he points to no far horizons and stands icily aloof from all the eager aspirations of the new time he will have nothing to do with strange idols the gospel of social justice that proclaimed by ruskin and heard at the street corners is penetrating into parliament and changing the whole atmosphere of political thought finds in him little response he murmurs impatient idealists and is still for reward he has incurred that subtlest of all rebukes the praises of the spectator the world of politics is a world of action of quick resolves and firm and sudden movement to hesitate is to be lost lord morley has the hesitation of the man of thought hazlitt used to say that you could see the defeat of the whigs written in the weak fluctuating lower features of charles fox's face just as you could see the victory of the tories imaged in pitt's aspiring nose so in the deep-set contemplative eye and indeterminate chin of lord morley you see the man who inspires others to lofty purpose rather than the man of action in his study alone with the past or the present he hitches his wagon to a star and rides away into the pure serene in a set speech face to face with a great issue he sounds a note of moral greatness austere and pure that is heard from no other lips to-day but in the presence of a situation calling for immediate and drastic action from himself he is like hamlet and laments the cursed spite that has brought him face to face with a world of trouble to do great things one must have a certain fearlessness of consequences an indifference to responsibility a fanatical faith or a gambler's recklessness lord morley has none of these qualities the gravity and apprehensiveness of his mind revolt against the irrevocable word and make decisive action an intolerable pain it is this perplexity of the will so characteristic of the philosopher in affairs that is perhaps the secret of lord morley's admiration for mr chamberlain for we all admire most that which we have not he sees in him the quality of decisive action at its highest mr chamberlain never doubts never hesitates he risks his whole fortune on the cast of a die he does not pause to think he acts he has no yesterdays no moral obligations do the principles he has professed stand in his path then so much the worse for his principles he discards them as lightly as the mariner disburdens his ship of the ballast in the hold his days are not like the poets bound each to each with filial piety he does not care what he has said he only sees the instant strategy and adopts it action action and again action if it is necessary to burn his boats he burns them on the instant if it suits his purpose to change his coat he changes it and is done with it if his purpose can only be achieved by a war then war let it be no situation so obstinate but he will unloose it familiar as his garter if in no other way then with the sword he is a horse in blinkers he sees neither to the right nor to the left only to the goal ahead and to that he flashes like an arrow to the mark 
He knows that the thing the people love in a leader is swift decision and dramatic, fearless action. Right or wrong, act. Lord Morley, lost in reflection, weighing all the delicately balanced factors, sees with wonder the whirlwind go by. Nor is the dominion of reflection over action the only bar to the leadership of liberalism which once seemed within his scope. For his reflection upon life is touched with an abiding melancholy which differentiates him from his masters, who saw in the triumph of reason and logic the solution of all the problems of society. He cultivates no such confident optimism, but seems to detect in modern life the odor of decay, to see our civilization not lit by the auroral light and bursting to perfect and enduring forms, but passing into the twilight whither the gods have vanished. It is of the late Lord Salisbury that he sometimes reminds one, though he has nothing of the grim acidity of that statesman. Lord Salisbury, it was well said, was like the leader of a lost cause, resolved to fight on, though well assured that nothing but defeat awaited him. His deep-rooted scepticism about all the tendencies of what he called our miserable life was qualified only by the disposition to resist all change, not because the existing social order was good, but because it existed, and because his despairing vision saw nothing but deeper glooms ahead. It was the disposition to bear the ills we have rather than fly to others that we know not of. The ship was doomed and human effort and impertinence. Lord Morley's dejection is charged with the more active principle. It may be a losing fight in which we are engaged, but human effort after perfection is none the less not an impertinence, but the highest duty. The ship may be doomed, but we can still steer it by the stars. With Empedocles he says, Fear not, life still leaves human effort scope, but since life teems with ill, nurse no extravagant hope. Because thou must not dream, thou needst not then despair. A pessimistic philosophy is not inconsistent with the leadership of the Tory party, but to liberalism it would be fatal, and even the stoicism of Arnold, which more nearly represents the attitude of Lord Morley, would serve only as a check to dissolution, for liberalism must be compact of dreams and inspired by extravagant hopes. Twenty-five years ago the future of British politics seemed bound up with three friends, the most powerful triumvirate of our time. Citizen Chamberlain provided the driving power and the popular appeal, Citizen Dilke the encyclopedic knowledge of detail and affairs, John Morley the moral motive and the intellectual foundation. Together they could have moved mountains, but the combination, for various reasons, fell to pieces, and the great hope vanished in twenty years of dismal reaction. The pity of it, Iago, oh, the pity of it! It is one of the two great personal tragedies of modern politics. Of the three, Lord Morley alone remains in effective service, and upon him the preacher of political liberty, the irony of events, has placed the burden of despotic control over a vast subject people, dimly struggling towards freedom. It seems like a jest of fate, a jest to show how far the stern moralist, the foe of the reason of state, can resist the assaults of circumstance and of entrenched officialdom. 
it is too soon yet to judge of the result the deportation of lajpat rai suggested that lord morley had begun to dig his own grave but the victory of second thoughts still keeps him on the side of the angels with courage he yet may make india his title to rank among statesmen of the first class secure and then his claim to a double first will be established but whether success or failure awaits him he cannot fail to stand out as one of the most memorable figures of our time for he breathes into the atmosphere of public life the quality it most needs and most lacks the quality of a lofty and instructed moral fervor it was that quality which made victorian politics great it is the absence of that quality which makes the politics of to-day so inferior in spirit if not in purpose there is no one left who can use the stops of the great organ save lord morley and he in these days uses them only too rarely twenty years ago a speech by john morley was an event i recall one great utterance of his in lancashire as the most memorable speech i have heard its peroration so simple and poignant lingers in the memory like a sonnet he was speaking of ireland and he closed as i remember it thus gentlemen do to ireland as you would be done by if she is poor remember it is you who have denied to her the fruits of her labor if she is ignorant remember it is your laws that have closed to her the book of knowledge if she is excessive as some of you may think in her devotion to a church which is not the church of most of you remember that church was her only friend and comforter in the dark hour gentlemen the dark hour is past she has found other friends other comforters we will never desert her you will catch that thrilling note in the oratory of lord morley at all times for he touches politics with a certain spiritual emotion that makes it less a business or a game than a religion he lifts it out of the street on to the highlands where the view is wide and the air pure and where the voices heard are the voices that do not bewilder or betray he is the conscience of the political world the barometer of our corporate soul tap him and you shall see whether we are set at foul or fair he has often been on the losing side sometimes perhaps on the wrong side never on the side of wrong he is true as a dial to the sun although it be not shined upon there is about him a sense of the splendid austerity of truth cold but exhilarating it is not merely that he does not lie there are some other politicians of whom that may be said it is that he does not trifle with truth it is sacred and inviolate he would not admit with erasmus that there are seasons when we must even conceal truth still less with fouché that les paroles sont faites pour cacher nos pensées his regard for truth is expressed in the motto to the essay on compromise it makes all the difference in the world whether we put truth in the first place or in the second this inflexible veracity is the rarest and most precious virtue in politics it made him if not as trevelyan says of macaulay the worst popular candidate since coriolanus at least a severe test of a constituency's attachment it is lord morley's contribution to the common stock truth and justice these are the fixed stars by which he steers his bark 
and even the prayer-book places religion and piety after them for indeed they are the true foundation of religion and piety it is this severe loyalty to truth and justice that is the note of his writings this and a clarity and invigoration of style that give one the sense of a brisk walk on the moorlands he is like the breath of winter frosty but kindly the lucidity of his thought is matched by the chasteness of his phrasing he does not love what holmes called the macaulay flowers of literature he does not burst into glossy purples that outredden all voluptuous garden roses but he is a well of english pure and undefiled a well whose waters have never served any growth save what was noble and worthy in personal intercourse he is singularly attractive true he has something of the impatience and hot temper that used to make his brother the doctor so formidable and delightful but the lightning is harmless and soon over if you are good and discreet and then his smile makes ample reparation it is the most sensitive smile i know the famous smile of mr balfour has more of the quality of the charmeur but this has the same winning pensiveness without the elusiveness and uncertainty of the other and there is one sure specific for banishing his frown insinuate into the conversation a delicate reference to literature and the sky clears magically then you discover where his heart really dwells and are admitted to the most intimate chambers of his thought he is like one who has escaped from the prison of the present with all its fateful tasks to the free air where one may talk of the fathers that begat us and pass judgment upon all their deeds and words without the uncomfortable necessity of facing their problems and the peril of committing their errors he is not and could never be a popular politician he is too eclectic dwells too much apart for that i am not a gregarious person he once said and apart from his passion for music he has few popular tastes but there is no man whose word carries more weight with friend and foe than his does the old jibe at him about spelling god with a small g is no longer heard for he has made men realize that there may be at least as much true religion in the spirit in which one doubts as in the most exact formulas of belief and he has never divorced the chivalrous austerity of his teaching from the conduct of his own life it was characteristic of him that when he lived on the top of the hog's back and kept a horse and trap to meet him at the station he always walked behind the animal when it was going uphill when men disagree with him they do so with searchings of heart for he is clear of the oak and the pine scrub and out on the rocks and the snow and perchance his vision is most true he brings to the consideration of politics that historic sense which is the most rare and valuable element in contemporary criticism he seems aloof from the dust and heat of the conflict watching the unfolding of a new chapter in the eternal drama of things and making his comments not in the spirit of one of the actors but with the cold detachment of the greek chorus the alarums and excursions of politics its subtleties and stratagems do not appeal to him he is not conscious of them has not that celerity of mind that moves with ease amid the tortuous labyrinth he is stiff and remote 
irritated by the asperities of the game, scornful of its expediencies. His true place is with Burke on the back benches, applying the test of eternal principle to the momentary task, rather than with Walpole on the treasury bench, seeking to make principles bend to the necessities of occasion, and basing his calculations on the foibles and follies of men. End of chapter 17